Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series has been accredited for continuing medical education credit. The American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at www.education.aaaai.org forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. Today, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Julie Wang, who is a professor of pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Dr. Wang is heavily involved in both clinical care as well as clinical research at the Jaffe Food Allergy Institute. Dr. Wang's research interests center on understanding the epidemiology, management, and novel therapeutic options for food allergy. With almost 100 peer-reviewed publications and extensive involvement within the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, Dr. Wang is an accomplished academician and a perfect guest for today's episode, which will discuss peanut oral immunotherapy. As disclosures, I have served as a consultant for AImmune-sponsored non-promotional educational activities. Dr. Wang discloses relationships with the following companies that have developed therapies for peanut allergy. She is a member of the DMC for AOK Abello, has research grants for food allergy from DBV Technologies and AImmune, and serves on the advisory board for DBV Technologies. And with that, Dr. Wang, thank you so much for taking time to join us today, and welcome to our show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here today. Well, I think this is going to be a great conversation, and as we'll get into, it's very timely as well. Um, it is uh, you know, for CME credit, but I think we're going to have a, a wide-ranging audience that are going to be interested to hear what you have to say. So let's start with some basics. Help us all understand the scope of peanut allergy as we stand today in 2019. What does this look like? How many people are affected? Are we seeing rates that are rising? And if so, you know, the million-dollar question, why is that? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's on the minds of many uh, patients, families, as well as us in the healthcare uh, world. This is a very important issue these days. Uh, recent estimates show that just over 2% of children in the U.S. have peanut allergy, and this translates to nearly a million and a half children and teens in the U.S. And so there is data to suggest that there is a rise in the number of children being affected by peanut allergy over recent years, as much as a threefold increase in a approximately 10-year time frame. Do we have any idea why we're seeing such an increase in rates of peanut allergy? So that is a million-dollar question. Um, There are a lot of theories as to why that's happening. One of the prevailing thoughts has been the timing of exposure of peanut to our young infants, which stems from the data that came from the UK, uh, looking at rates of peanut allergy in Israel versus the UK, um, and correlating that with the timing of peanut exposure in those two places, which ultimately led to the LEAP trial um, that was published in 2015, 
showing a significant decrease in rates of peanut allergy for the infants uh, who are high risk, who are randomized to introduce peanut early in life. So the timing of exposure of peanut allergen to young infants who are at risk seems to play a big role. However, that probably is not the entire answer because data from the LEAP study also show that by the time they were screened for that study, there were already about 10% of kids who showed evidence of peanut allergen sensitization, meaning that they were potentially allergic even uh, before the four to six month age frame. Also, there were kids, a minority granted, but uh, there were some kids who were randomized to receive peanut early in life, yet still ultimately develop, develop peanut allergy. So some other ideas as to why this is happening is the way we're exposing people to peanut. Um, so typically we think about allergen exposure to foods by mouth. Um, however, for young kids with eczema, allergen exposure can occur through the inflamed skin, and exposure through that route can potentially skew to a more allergic profile. So it sounds like uh, the way that we're feeding infants is a big part of the problem, um, but there's no clear you know, num one, one reason or one answer why. And I don't know how many times a day you get this question, but I get it quite frequently from parents and they, you know, especially grandparents that say, nobody had peanut allergy when I was a child, but I think it's important to kind of you know, have that conversation with folks and, and let people know there's no clear-cut reason why. Right. This certainly isn't something that a parent should feel guilty about because it very likely is going to be multifactorial, not only the timing of peanut exposure, but whether there are other medical issues such as the eczema that I had mentioned. Uh, there may be also other factors that were just not well understood right now um, because there are many other theories that are being explored. I love that you said that you know there's uh, there's a lot of guilt out there and it's not your fault and I think that's a message that all of us can tell mothers because I, I know that a lot of parents have uh, that unnecessary burden of thinking that they did something that caused their child's peanut allergy so thank you for saying that now you you mentioned you know millions of children uh, two percent of the population in the United States have peanut allergy that's a lot of kids um, that need to avoid peanut but what what's walk us through a scenario of daily life. What does life look like for somebody who has a peanut allergy? And also, if you could address what situations really place them at greatest risk for experiencing an allergic reaction? Yeah, so food allergies, specifically peanut allergy, um, is something that is not outwardly visible to people outside the patient and their family. And so in some ways, it's very difficult for non-allergic patients and families to truly understand the impact the diagnosis has. And so the primary management strategies that penologic individuals need to take is that they need to take steps to make sure that their food does not contain peanut because if they are inadvertently exposed to peanut, there is a potential for allergic reactions that can range from mild to severe, including life-threatening anaphylaxis. And so we eat all the time, every single day. And so while it may sound fairly simple uh, to just check your food and avoid peanut, it actually turns out to be something that peanut allergic people have to really think about throughout their day, every single day. Um, so one of the key things that we teach patients and their families is to read ingredient labels, 
to ensure that whatever prepackaged foods that they're consuming don't contain the allergen. And fortunately, there are labeling laws in the U.S. that mandate clear labeling of peanuts as well as other major allergens if the food, in fact, does contain peanuts. What makes it a bit more challenging is that a lot of companies also use precautionary labeling, which is also known as uh, may contain or it's processed in a factory. And those statements are unfortunately not regulated. And there is no good information for the consumer to truly understand whether those statements really indicate risk and if so, to what degree of risk um, they are alerting the consumer to. And so I've just mentioned the prepackaged food and that certainly is not the entirety of the food that we eat every day. Uh, we eat food in our own homes, we at other people's homes, outside in restaurants. And so steps that can be taken in those scenarios would be clear communication. So this is a diagnosis that we encourage patients and families to not be shy about. Um, anyone they interact with, certainly around the food setting, should know about the allergy and should understand the importance of having the food free of peanuts. And, you know, there are nuances of this, again, which the allergic individual knows very well, but the non-allergic person will not be thinking about so carefully. So, for example, when we talk about no cross-contact, we mean that not only does is the dish not made with any ingredients containing peanuts, but it should be prepared in bowls and using spoons that hasn't been used uh, to stir another pot that might have contained peanut because even small amounts are are potentially um, able to trigger allergic reactions. So allergen avoidance is one key aspect, but we know that Things happen in real life, and despite the best of intentions with reading ingredient labels and communicating clearly the, the presence of the allergy, mistakes can sometimes happen. And so the other main arm that we teach patients in terms of management is to always be prepared to treat an allergic reaction because there is no reliable way for us to predict when a severe allergic reaction can occur. And so that entails the person carrying an epinephrine auto-injector at all times because, you know, we just never know when we're going to get hungry and want to eat something. Um, and that carrying of the auto-injector is also a constant reminder that potentially very serious life-threatening things can happen. So there is a significant amount of work and burden that uh, patients managing peanut allergy have to deal with as well as their families. It sounds like a lot of work. Do do families with who have children with peanut allergy have um heightened levels of anxiety as well? Yes, that's a great question. Um there is data to show that patients with peanut allergy do feel more stress and anxiety as a result of their peanut allergy and this level of stress and anxiety is actually comparable to other chronic illnesses. So this is a significant part of what patients have to deal with. Mm. And you mentioned, you know, focusing on trying to make sure accidental ingestion doesn't occur. But what about other types of exposures? You know, can somebody with peanut allergy uh, play in Little League or go to a ballpark or fly in an airplane? And um, is that safe for them to do? So one of the main points that we educate patients and their families about is that the route of exposure that is most concerning to us is 
oral. So meaning that the food allergen gets into their mouth um, via food or via transfer from biting their nails or, or sucking their thumb. I'm referring to young kids there. Um, hmm. But contact and being around others who are eating peanut are considered very low risk scenarios. So there have been studies where there are simulated scenarios of a peanut allergic person having peanut put on their skin and or being around others shelling peanuts or or consuming peanut butter, um, showing that those, in fact, are low-risk scenarios for the patients. Um, In one age group that requires a little bit more watchfulness is the young children, um, infants, and toddlers, where there is a lot of hand-mouth uh, behavior, and that could be just hands in the mouth and or mouthing toys, where what would have been a skin contact exposure for an older individual, the allergen could be transferred to the mouth, in which case an allergic reaction could occur in that scenario. So it, I've heard you describe now really a lot of nuances that surround various situations and individuals' risk for reaction, things like that. Um, and along those lines, does everybody with peanut allergy, you know, are they going to at risk for having a life-threatening reaction from, say, a trace amount, or do we see variability in sort of the amounts of peanuts somebody would need to be exposed to to cause a more severe reaction? Yeah, that's a question on everybody's minds who is managing peanut allergy. So unfortunately, right now, there is no great test or way for us to identify individuals who are at high risk for having severe reactions with very small exposures. From oral food challenge data, we do see that there is a range um, amongst the peanut allergic population where some people would have symptoms with very small dose exposures, whereas others will have higher thresholds before triggering an allergic reaction. Um, That is via food challenge, which is a very monitored circumstance. And Unfortunately, there is also no data where people undergo repeated food challenges, so we don't truly know whether if one is a high-threshold reactor at one food challenge, whether that threshold is maintained throughout multiple food challenges within um, a couple of days or weeks or months' time frame. So that is why we counsel all our penologic patients to be vigilant. Um, so once you're diagnosed with peanut allergy, the same level of vigilance and care is expected and advised for our families. Yeah, I, that's a that's a great way to to summarize that. And it it it's challenging because we're stuck, right? It's we have this natural variability, but we have no way of identifying who really is at you know risk from these small amounts. And just to clarify, because I hear this all the time, where people are told from their say peanut skin prick test or or peanut blood level that their test result indicates that they have a life threatening peanut allergy. Is that the case at all? Right. That's a very important point uh, that we always teach our families is that these skin tests and the blood tests, while they're good to some degree, they're not perfect, and they don't actually provide us with as much information as we would hope it can provide. So what these test results indicate is how likely the allergy exists. So with higher IgE level, blood IgE levels or larger skin tests, we're more convinced that the allergy exists. However, these test results do not reliably tell us what symptoms would occur if an allergic reaction were to happen, nor would they tell us how much allergen would be needed to trigger an allergic reaction. And so 
there is a lot of research right now to look at these types of questions and hopefully identify biomarkers which can provide this type of individual patient level information. Hmm. Well, what about the the 2% of children that have peanut allergy right now? Uh, Does that turn into 2% of adults that have peanut allergy or is it possible for somebody to naturally develop tolerance over time? Yes. So, Fortunately, we do see that some people can outgrow their peanut allergy. Um, It is about 20% based on some data, um, which is not the majority, but there is hope for a subset of peanut allergic individuals to uh, develop tolerance naturally over time. So we do expect that the adult population may have a bit less peanut allergy compared to children. However, there isn't great data at this point to know what the true prevalence of peanut allergy is in adulthood. Um, The other tricky thing about understanding the rates of peanut allergy in adulthood is that there are some proteins uh, in peanut that look very similar to tree pollen. And so oral allergy is a potential issue for a lot of adults. And we commonly hear this with apples. So someone who's had seasonal springtime symptoms uh, for several years may find that they start having itchiness of the mouth and throat area after eating fresh apples, but they can easily drink apple juice or eat apple pie without an issue. And so this issue is called pollen food syndrome or oral allergy syndrome which is due to the homology between the specific protein and fresh fruits that come from trees. And an analogous thing can be seen for peanuts. So it is possible for some adults to have peanut allergy, but in this oral allergy way, as opposed to the classic IgE-mediated allergies that we see in childhood. So for adults, it's probably a combination of both. That's really interesting, and um, I'm really glad you circled back to the IgE-mediated food allergy, because that's really what we're talking about here. So um, before we go any further, I I just realized we haven't really described what that means. What kind of symptoms can occur when somebody has an IgE-mediated reaction to peanut? Right. So IgE-mediated allergy really are immediate symptoms after the peanut exposure. So Typically, after ingestion, we would expect symptoms within minutes to about two hours, but unlikely to be several hours later. And the symptoms can range uh, really affecting any body system. Um, Often people think about skin symptoms such as hives, itchy, rash, and that is the most common symptom. However, allergic reactions can occur without skin symptoms. Mm. So other symptoms that can be seen in an allergic reaction include vomiting, diarrhea, nausea, um, respiratory symptoms such as cough, wheezing, trouble breathing. It can also show up as cardiovascular symptoms, and that can manifest as feeling dizzy or pale or weak, um, low blood pressure. Uh, So a variety of symptoms can be seen in an IgE-mediated reaction to peanuts. And to help folks understand context, um, you mentioned that typically these are going to happen pretty fast, within a few minutes or up to a couple of hours after eating, because these are some common symptoms that can occur for a whole host of other other reasons. So is that some of the education that you um, you recommend that providers give to families about really putting it in that framework? Yes, absolutely. Uh, 
patients really need to understand what types of symptoms they should be looking for and should be concerned about. And also timing uh, is a key aspect because we don't want peanut allergic patients to worry about a runny nose in the spring, you know, that happens eight hours after exposure. In that scenario, they probably have springtime allergies, not their peanut allergy um, allergic reaction. And so being well-educated about timing and types of symptoms can help peanut allergic patients uh, more easily navigate their lives and contextualize when they should worry more. Okay. Well, so this is fantastic background, and and I'd like to shift the conversation, but I just want to summarize and and let me know if I missed the mark here, but I'm I'm hearing you describe, one, um, a burden of living with peanut allergy, two, a highly individualized and nuanced approach to sort of management, and three, a key component of education of of patients and families. Um, Do you think that those are all sort of, uh, is that an accurate sort of summary of what you've described so far? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, with that, let's shift gears and, you know, let's talk about the the buzzworthy topic of oral immunotherapy. Um, Help us understand what kind of treatment does oral immunotherapy offer for peanut allergy? And, you know, the question everybody wants to know is, is this a cure? The field of food allergy is very excited right now because oral immunotherapy appears to be on the verge of um, FDA approval for one pharmaceutical product. Um, So what oral immunotherapy entails is exposing the allergic individual to small increasing amounts of peanuts under close medical supervision to try to basically teach the immune system to be less reactive to the allergen. And this approach is analogous to what we already do in the allergy fields for venom allergies and environmental allergies, um, where we're effectively giving allergy shots to teach the immune system to not be so reactive to the tree pollens or the grass pollens that are out there or um, to be less reactive if a person gets a wasp sting. What's different is the route of allergen exposure for oral immunotherapy is not via shot, but via um, oral, by mouth. And so this is something that the patient would need to take on a daily basis. Um, We start at very small doses, so sub-threshold levels, and increase it over time like a staircase um, where we aim for a maintenance dose of the ranging from one peanut to several peanuts, depending on the study that you're looking at. This is not a cure, but really a treatment strategy to increase the level of protection to help peanut allergic families, uh, peanut allergic patients and their families uh, better manage on a daily, day-to-day basis and hopefully relieve some of the burden of um, and worry that surrounds the diagnosis. And to give us a sense of, you know, the, the doses that we're talking about here, what's the, you know, amount of protein in, say, one peanut kernel? So one peanut would equate to approximately 300 milligrams of peanut protein. That's not very much at all, is it? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, now, you mentioned research. and I, If you can, I know there's, I don't expect you to go through all of the different studies that have been done, but if you were able to um, summarize what some of the research surrounding peanut oil immunotherapy has shown us, specifically some of the endpoints and what they've demonstrated, um, that I think this this would be wonderful for all of our listeners to hear, and this, and then we can talk about major take home points after that. 
Sure. So there have been a number of studies examining peanut oral immunotherapy in the last decade plus. And so in aggregate, what these studies show is that many peanut allergic individuals are able to be desensitized to peanuts um, using this small gradual increasing doses process. Um, estimates range to from around 60 to 80% success in terms of the number of individuals who begin the process who can ultimately reach the maintenance dose. And from study to study, there is some variation in terms of what the maintenance dose chosen is. There are side effects, though, uh, to this process because we are giving peanut allergic individuals a known allergen. Um, so allergic reactions that range from mild to severe have been reported and these can happen to the majority of individuals who undergo the oral immunotherapy process. Um, common symptoms include oral symptoms as well as GI symptoms, um, but it's important to understand that severe reactions such as anaphylaxis and the need for epinephrine auto-injector is a notable uh, side effect. And just to clarify for anybody who's listening, should Oral immunotherapy to peanut or any other food be done at home without supervision, or is this something that really requires a very um, strict protocol and, and supervised application? Yeah, that's a great question. So the process of oral immunotherapy does require close supervision by a medical professional. Uh, what typically happens is that on the first day to start off the process, it's done under medical oversight in a setting that is ready to treat the range of allergic reactions, including anaphylaxis. Once a safe dose is started, then there is a daily dose that is taken at home. So there is a part of this process that is done outside of the medical setting, um, but the expectation is there is close communication with the healthcare provider. Any dose increases, though, absolutely should be done under a medically observed setting. And the side effects that you mentioned, uh, is that only happening like the at the very beginning? Um, or are people experiencing allergic reactions once they've been taking this on a daily basis for quite some time? So allergic reactions can happen at any time, unfortunately. There are symptoms or reactions that can be seen during that climb up the staircase, but studies have reported that people can have allergic reactions, including anaphylaxis, even after reaching a maintenance dose and have, and even after being on that maintenance dose for a period of months or even years. And so that is one important aspect that families need to understand is that um, they will always need to take certain precautions uh, when they're dosing their oral immunotherapy. And um, does they need to continue to have their epinephrine with them, even though they're undergoing a desensitization protocol? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, this is not a cure. So we're not fixing or getting rid of the peanut allergy. We're basically teaching the immune system to be less responsive. And so the expectation is that this treatment strategy is in addition to maintaining peanut avoidance, meaning reading ingredient labels and clear communication with anyone who prepares food, um, that there should not be peanut intentionally in that dish, um, as well as maintaining an epinephrine auto-injector at all times, because 
allergic reactions can happen to the treatment itself, the oral immunotherapy, but potentially also outside in a restaurant or such if the threshold of exposure potentially exceeds what level of protection is afforded by the oral immunotherapy. Mm. And going back to some of the research that you mentioned, um, most of those, uh, are those reported after following patients for, say, six months, 12 months? Are they following them for 10 years? Uh, give us a better sense of how long um, people are really being followed to see what happens. Yeah, so the data out so far is really on the short-term range. Um, some studies have been half a year. Other studies have been a year to a few years. There's very little data looking at how people are doing five, 10 plus years out from immunotherapy because this is a relatively new treatment. And so right now, the largest study to date is the phase three study that was published last year by Amune, showing that there was the success rate that effectively matches what has been seen in other smaller studies um, and adverse of effects rates were also fairly comparable. Right now, there is ongoing efforts to follow these patients out longer within that phase three study, but also there are other studies looking at long-term outcomes of peanut oral immunotherapy. So hopefully, we'll get a better understanding over time of how people are doing. Mm. And the idea if, you know, if and when this is put into practice, um, that this is really long-term management that's going to last years, if not indefinitely. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. The conversations that we're having now with families is precisely this, that this is a treatment such as what we would see for a diabetic or someone with hypertension, is that we try to start treatment and really expect the treatment to be ongoing indefinitely. Um, certainly, we would hope that it's at some point in the not-too-distant future that we'll find a way to actually cure people, but uh, oral immunotherapy has not proven to be that yet. Mm. And back to the research, you mentioned a couple of things I want to circle back to. One is that it's not 100% successful. And the follow-up to that is, how do these research studies sort of define success? Was it um, participants underwent like an oral challenge at entry, and then they were able to tolerate a higher amount at the end of the study? Or, um, you know, what else did they look at? Yeah, these are great questions. And I think they're best illustrated by talking about the phase three study that was published last year. Hmm. So in that study, about 20% of participants dropped out, so did not complete the protocol and reach maintenance. And of those 20%, a little bit more than half actually dropped out because they had side effects that the family felt was intolerable or was not worth the the effort to, to push on in the process. Uh, there were others who dropped out for a variety of other reasons um, because I had mentioned as an example that this does require everyday dosing um, and there are some precautions that we do advise patients to take, such as uh, doing a relatively quiet activity for two hours afterwards and not dosing when they're ill. And that those types of parameters, it's a little hard for some families to find the time uh, to be able to manage the oral immunotherapy process. And so a subset of individuals drop out because this process is just not something that fits well with their lifestyle. Mm. 
And then um, you were going to talk about the the sort of endpoint. Was it an increased amount of peanut people could tolerate, or what did they actually look at? Right. So in this phase three study, again, similar to some of the other studies that were published, um, individuals underwent a baseline food challenge to identify the threshold dose of peanut that triggered an allergic reaction. And then at the end of treatment, the subjects, again, underwent another food challenge to see whether that threshold changed or not. The study also examined the severity of symptoms that developed at the different food challenges and compared the two. So the outcomes of success is really defined by the food challenge. Mm. So it it looks like uh, right now, at least the published research is showing an ability to tolerate higher levels, but um, as you mentioned, you can't just put, you know, eat as much as you want necessarily. Correct. So again, going back to this study as an example, patients who entered this study had to react at less than at around a third of a peanut, um, whereas at the end of the study, they were found to be able to raise the threshold for two-thirds of them to two peanuts. So for a significant number, that threshold did increase very nicely, such that we think two peanuts certainly should be enough to protect from the kind of everyday outside accidental exposure to peanuts. Uh. The, the trace amounts and cross-contact that you were talking about earlier, is that, that Correct. what you're referencing? Oh, gotcha. Correct, yeah. So the expectation is not that these people will be making themselves peanut butter sandwiches or ordering peanut butter cookies outside. They would still maintain their usual avoidance strategies, but this provides a buffer such that in case some mistake is made anywhere along that multi- uh, path, of acquiring the food preparation, et cetera, to the person consuming it, that if some mistake happened along that process, that the individual will be less likely to have an allergic reaction and or if there is an allergic reaction, the symptoms would hopefully be milder than what it would have been had they not undergone the oral immunotherapy process. Okay. Um, That's a great summary. And so, I'm hearing you describe that uh, this is a daily regimen. It's a, it's a build-up period uh, with you know pretty regular visits to the physician office to actually receive the, the next higher dose. Then it's taking this every day for a prolonged period of time. You mentioned some of the the risks involved in regards to side effects. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the benefits. You know why why pursue this in the first place? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, the burden on a daily life for peanut allergic individuals is is quite high because they have to constantly be on alert and basically worry that even if they do everything right, meaning that they read the ingredient labels or they communicate to the waiter or the food preparer, that everybody understands clearly and takes the precautions necessary to ensure safety of that food product. Because we know that mistakes do happen, and that's been reported in the literature that peanut allergic individuals, despite the best of intentions, allergic reactions do happen, this oral immunotherapy process, by raising the threshold dose to trigger an allergic reaction, hopefully will provide families with potentially the peace of mind that if some mistake happens, that their child or themselves would be less likely to have an allergic reaction or, as I mentioned, certainly a milder reaction than what would have been had um, this process not been started. 
Yeah, so as you mentioned, for those families that have a, a lot of anxiety surrounding this, or those that you know are exquisitely sensitive, it gives them that buffer. Um, it seems like a uh, you know good benefit. Yeah, and up until now, the management strategy really relied on strict avoidance of the allergen and this preparedness with epinephrine auto-injector. And to some families, that felt like a very passive approach. They almost have to kind of wait and see, and if they have a reaction, they'll deal with it. If they don't, then phew, great. Whereas with this process, I think a lot of families feel that they can have a more proactive approach to gain that buffer that hopefully will um, improve their day-to-day functioning. You know, implementation is always the tricky part, right? Um, you know, everything kind of sounds good on the surface, but then you know, really thinking through the nitty-gritty details is where we sometimes find that um, challenges occur. What about on the allergist end? Uh, you know, what do allergists who offer oral immunotherapy need to consider in regards to implementing this within their office setting? Yeah, um, that's a great question, and you know, I think uh, us allergists are very excited that we're we potentially have something new to offer our patients, um, but it is practice impacting um, with the number of visits that each individual will need to have um, that will increase the workflow for us in terms of physical space to be able to see all of these patients, appointment slots, et cetera. We also know that this process, there's a huge learning curve for the doctors, their practice staff, as well as the families. And so at the beginning, there often are a lot of phone calls uh, that come through to us asking questions about, is it okay to dose because my child had the sniffles? Or, oh, we this came up and we don't have the two-hour window to do a quiet activity. What should we do? Um, and certainly, I mentioned allergic reactions to the doses. Families will contact us to better understand how to manage and, you know, whether to change your changes doses would be needed, et cetera. So this is something that for any allergist who is considering or already does, um, there requires a thoughtful process in terms of how to incorporate patients undergoing oral immunotherapy into a busy practice. Mm. And what about from the family aspect? Uh, you mentioned, you know, not everybody's able to necessarily achieve the maintenance dose for a variety of reasons. And so do we know sort of who's the best candidate uh, to undergo peanut oral immunotherapy? And uh, are there specifically any risk factors that would make somebody a suboptimal candidate? Right. So as in anything in medicine, we always have to get a good understanding of our patients and not every therapy will work for every patient. So some of the things that we really consider at the beginning is, one, we want to make sure that the person, in fact, has a peanut allergy. Um, I mentioned that 20% of individuals can potentially outgrow their peanut allergy naturally. And so if there is that potential, we certainly don't want a family to embark on a long-term treatment strategy that requires a lot of effort, um, both at home and coming to office visits, if the child, in fact, doesn't have the allergy. So that's step number one. We also want to make sure that the patient and the family fully understands the goals and purposes and process of oral immunotherapy. Some do not fully understand the effort that's entailed in terms of frequency of visits and what they would need to do at home, and others don't fully understand the risks and benefits 
um, that are involved in this process, which again is no different from uh, most medical interventions. There's always a potential risk and potential benefits. And so uh, we will need to make sure that the, the balance tips in the benefit range um, and that outweighs the risks involved. So some things that we would consider would be patient specific. So if they have underlying medical issues, uh, such as asthma that's not well controlled, if they already have one allergic disorder that's not well controlled, that certainly does bring up the question of whether they would be more prone to have side effects or allergic reactions to the oral immunotherapy, as well as if they were not adhering to their asthma medications, for example, that would potentially be a red flag signaling us to wonder whether the family would be able to adhere um, to all the quote-unquote rules that we have related to oral immunotherapy. Um, mm. In addition to the kind of medical aspects of it, we also look at the patient and family characteristics. And this can involve the child. Are they willing and able to cooperate and communicate um, how they're feeling? Because if they are, are allergic symptoms, we'd want them to tell us quickly so that um, symptoms can be treated and dosed adjusted if needed on a family end. As I mentioned, this does require adult supervision. And so having a family situation where there would be an adult who can supervise the dosing um, and the quiet time for the two hours afterwards and to bring the child to the doctor's visits, uh, the office visits, um, those are all factors that we would need to consider um, before embarking on this oral immunotherapy process. It's a lot to think through, and you know, as, as you discuss all of these different challenges, uh, it brings to mind you know the lessons we've learned in regards to non-adherence with asthma management because it's very similar. It requires the daily management plan along with self-management for whenever symptoms occur. And uh, as you know, and our listeners do as well, there are so many factors involved as to why um, non-adherence can you know factor into that. And I think you know, hopefully, we can extrapolate lessons learned from asthma. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Oral immunotherapy as well. Yeah. Right. Um, well, so let's, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, this great discussion, um, let's talk about sort of a timely event that occurred. And on uh, September 13th, 2019, the Food and Drug Administration convened a panel to discuss the first peanut oral immunotherapy product to be considered for FDA approval, which was named AR101 during the research trials that you discussed uh, and will now be called Palforzia. Uh, can you tell us what happened at this meeting? Yeah, so that was a convening of an expert advisory panel uh, where they held an open session to really discuss the relevant data surrounding uh, this product, uh, looking at both the efficacy data as well as the safety data. Um, and ultimately, the panel made the recommendation that the FDA should approve this new drug. Now, that does not mean the FDA, in fact, will. My understanding is often the FDA does um, align with what the expert committee recommends, um, but that will not happen until the beginning of 2020. So as of now, it is not FDA approved. This was an expert advisory panel that reviewed the existing data and made their um, expert recommendation. And this um, drug, Palforzia, is it actually a medicine or, you know, what's actually in it? Yes. So Palforzia is a pharmaceutical-grade pre-measured peanut flour. 
Um, and so it is food, but is being viewed as a biologic because it is manufactured to ensure consistency in protein content from lot to lot, capsule to capsule. Uh, so it is pharmaceutical grade, but it is peanut flour. Um, and what's the difference between this Palforzia product that's being considered for FDA approval versus some uh, somebody in practice, in clinical practice, just using peanut flour to deliver peanut oral immunotherapy? So the difference is that this Palforzia is made in a way to ensure that there is ex the exact protein content in each capsule um, as stated on the label, whereas the peanut flour that is used in by some in practice, there may be some variation in terms of measurements um, or even batch to batch or lot to lot in terms of how much peanut protein is in a certain amount of peanut flour. Mm. So the quantity may differ uh, because of just regulatory practices and, and as such. However, it's really the same protein. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Do we have a sense of what Palforzia may cost? Uh, and you know, as a follow-up, does the FDA approval, if it, if and when it comes, offer any changes in regards to um, how insurance companies or coverage of this treatment may change? Those are great questions um, that we don't truly have the answer to right now. The company has not stated, as far as I understand, pricing amounts, but it could be in the thousands range. Um, what would be helpful if the FDA approves it, is that it would lead to the establishment of insurance codes uh, to allow for insurance coverage, hopefully. Um, and this potentially would translate to facilitating OIT, moving to a wider clinical practice, and thus expanding access to patients. So, it, you know, there, this is a monumental event for many reasons, um, not only because it's sort of summarizes our approach to therapy and, you know, that we haven't really had anything uh, for a long time. Uh, and as you mentioned, it really can change the way that we deliver oral immunotherapy across the board. Oh, absolutely. This is a very exciting time in, in the food allergy field. Uh, up until now, we've had no FDA-approved product, um, and it sounds like we're within months from that. And I see this really as a first step to potentially more and more treatment options for our food allergic uh, patients. That's great. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, being with us today and, and walking us through really all the great background information and, and um, summarizing sort of the, the research to date to got us to where we are today. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on in the future when we have even more data and, and long-term experience with this. Um, and before we say goodbye, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yes, actually. Um, part of the excitement that I have with this um, in the food allergy world is that while oral immunotherapy, we've heard a lot about it and are very excited to look forward to potential FDA approval, there is actually a very robust pipeline of other treatment approaches that are currently under investigation. Um, and these include other forms of immunotherapy, such as sublingual and cutaneous, but also biologics and vaccines are being explored. So we hope as a field that we're actually going to be able to offer our patients several treatment options in the near, uh, hopefully not too distant future, um, so that we ultimately would be able to tailor treatments uh, according to individual allergy characteristics, as well as patient and family preferences and goals. So I think uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to have a lot of different things that we should be able to offer uh, food allergic individuals 
uh, over time. Um, and I guess the only other thing, the one other thing that I want to mention is that avoidance has been a very successful strategy for many um, over the years. And so for some families, they may choose to continue avoidance as their preferred strategy. And um, it's important, I think, to remember that this should still remain a treatment option for families, which is completely viable. Oh, that's well stated. And, you know, just to, to recap again, because you mentioned this so many times, um, you know, as, as we've heard from Dr. Wang here during our episode, you know, the management of peanut allergy and food allergy is not one size fits all. It's a nuanced condition. Uh, it's individualized in regards to the approach to management and now uh, treatment as well. Well, Dr. Wang, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at www.education.aaaai.org forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.